Thank you, Carmen. Thank you for sharing that with us, the Word of God. I hope you have your Bible out and that you've already turned to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. And uh, it's good to look out and see each of you that are here. And uh, thank you for worshiping at Vero Bible. If you're visiting, I sure would love to meet you, connect with you, and, uh, and just get better acquainted. And we have a sign-up in the back. You can certainly sign up so that you can receive our newsletter. We'd love to share that with you. Last weekend, Pastor Brenton did a tremendous job bringing the Word of God uh, in chapter 3. I had a chance to listen to that from a distance. Marini and I uh, celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary, 36 years. And let me tell you how I know I got that number right, because I know what it is to miss the right number. That happens once. And so 36 years, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. Uh, we actually uh, had a funeral on Saturday morning. Of course, all of you know that. Jeff Fouts passed away, and we had a, uh, a funeral there for he and his family and the, gather, the gathering of friends and family over at King's Baptist. So Sunday, we just thought, let's just get out of town and have a day, and we're thankful to do that. But I was so blessed by the sermon that Brenton preached, and I'm just thankful that we have those in our body who are gifted by God to preach and proclaim the Word of God. Amen? It's great. Well, today we're going to focus on the inauguration of the earthly ministry of Jesus. When we think of a king being inaugurated, we probably have a picture of a grand event with pomp and circumstance. Well, that was not the entry point for Jesus' earthly ministry, I can tell you. Uh, his inauguration didn't come with dignity and celebration. His inauguration came with a time of testing. Today we're going to learn what it means to be spirit-led and scripture fed. This is exactly what our Lord modeled as he left his water baptism celebration and entered the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he was tempted by the devil. You, you would think that in the beginning of a new ministry, God might have started him out with something uh, light and easy, you know? Well, not the ministry of Jesus. The Father had a purpose and a plan for his coming. And now this is in full swing. Jesus has been baptized. The Father has stated, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And now the Father is preparing him for his three years of earthly ministry. And he allows him to go face to face with the arch enemy of God. Now, you might have noticed that we jumped from baby Jesus in chapter 2 to adult Jesus in chapter 3. Uh, where were the childhood years, the adolescent years of Christ? Well, the Bible just doesn't speak much about that. But there was an incident that's recorded in Luke's gospel where uh, Mary and, and uh, Joseph and Mary had traveled with a caravan to the Jewish feast of Passover in Jerusalem. And upon arriving and all the festivities and the activities, uh, they lost sight of little Jesus, who was probably in the... 10 to 12, 13 year, years of age range. And uh, they looked for him, and for three days they could not find him. And they finally went back to, the, uh, to Jerusalem, and there they found him at the temple. And the scripture says, basically, that he was there among the rabbis, and he was actually asking questions of them. And then he was giving answers to questions. Now, this is the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. This is one who is fully God and yet fully man. 
And so he was there learning. Jesus was learning uh, at the feet of the rabbis. But he was also uh, sharing and informing the rabbis of a few things. You would think that would be the case, wouldn't you? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 52, I'll just read one verse for you. It says that at the end of that time, as he was sitting with them and teaching and also receiving, that Jesus, it says, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This idea that Jesus was ready-made when he was growing up is not true. Jesus was still fully boy growing up. And so he had things to learn. He had things to understand. And he was asking these questions. At the same time, he's not just growing up in the presence of man. He's growing up in the presence of God the Father. And so he's receiving wisdom He's gaining stature and favor with both man and with God. So while he was fully God, he was fully man. The Son of God who became the Son of Man submitted. Listen now, please get this. This is theology of Christ in his incarnation. That Jesus submitted the attributes of his deity. He submitted those to the Father when he was clothed in flesh and blood. At times it was on display, this, the, these wonderful attributes. We saw miracles and signs and wonders that he would perform. But at other times, it, it was not on display. It was actually veiled. He was simply walking out according to the Father's will on this earth. I want you to understand that the, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, while he was on the earth, never did a single thing out of his own desire, out of his own volition, he never executed any God authority. He never, he never executed any uh, uh, deatific attribute without the Father giving him that authority and leadership. He did not act on his own. He came here not to fulfill his own purpose. He came to fulfill the will of his Father. And so even in his days as a boy... He's growing, he's learning, he's gaining stature and favor with man and with God. Verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. I want to take a side road today, uh, not that it doesn't line up with the text, it's actually in the text, so we're, this is good exposition. But he said something here that's recorded that I want you and I to focus on. That Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. What happened when he was in the wilderness? He went 40 days without food and water. We know that he was there, and then Satan appears to him. The devil comes to tempt him. This whole experience in the wilderness was led by the Spirit of the living God. This was part of the preparation that Christ would go through. Think about that. The Son of God was being led by the Spirit. This would be the way of his entire ministry, everything he ever did, even in the calling of the disciples that we read at the end of the chapter. Listen, another gospel records that the night before the calling of his disciples, he went up on the mountain to pray. And it says that he, at dawn, he came down off the mountain. He prayed through the night. 
he goes out that day and he starts selecting disciples. What does that tell you? That Jesus received from his father who the disciples would be. If you remember John 17 where Jesus is praying that priestly prayer right before he goes to uh, Gethsemane and then he's offered up on the cross uh, not long after. We know that in the priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, I've kept all of those that you gave to me. The disciples were given to Christ by God the Father. You say, why are you driving this point home that Jesus didn't act on his own? Why? Because if Jesus never acted on his own, why are Christians today acting on their own? Why are Christians today not being led by the Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And so that's what I want to focus on for a moment. The New Testament has much to say about the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week we learned that the church, the the spiritual body of Christ, is formed as believers are immersed by Christ with the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, the moment that regeneration occurs, as the Holy Spirit regenerates your your dead spirit, brings it alive, at that second, you are born again. It's not even a second. It's not even a blink. It's it's even faster than a twinkle of the eye, okay? It, It happens immediately. And at that second, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit. You are now filled with the Holy Spirit. You are now by Christ baptized into the body of Christ, the church. You belong to the church the second you're saved. Isn't that interesting? We have our membership files and we have our membership enrollments and everything, membership class, and we at Bureau Bible Fellowship have a class for that very purpose because we want you to understand what this church is focused upon, what God has given to us. We feel like as a church that we're not here to come up with some idea, some grand scheme and invite you into it. We are here to understand what God's grand scheme is and join him in his work. And we want you to understand what God's called us to be part of. And so we have a membership class. But quite honestly, that membership class did not save you and did not bring you into the body of Christ. That happened the second that you were saved, which makes no sense for believers who don't go to church. You say, go to church? Yeah, I'm not referring so much to a location as I am what church really is, the people. They don't go to hang out with the people of God. Whenever the people of God gather, the Spirit of God is there with them, amen? That's the church. We could go to the beach this afternoon and have church. We could come to your home, all of us, let you make a big meal for all of us, and we'll sit in your chairs and enjoy your fellowship, and we'll have church. The church is not bound by buildings or names or places, locations, or any of that nonsense. The second that a person is saved, you are called out of darkness, you're called into the marvelous light of Christ, and you belong to the church. Praise God, we belong. And there is... There, there is this baptism of the Spirit, and I know that Pastor Brenton uh, talked about that briefly last week. The baptism of the Spirit, which I think has been grossly misinterpreted in many circles today in Christendom. Uh, 
the baptism of the Spirit is where Christ immerses us into one body. Everyone is uniquely different by nation, by tongue, by, by color. We're all different, right? But the second you're saved, you're one. That's your brother, that's your sister. Oh, how our, our world and our nation needs to hear that today. Where the enemy has us fighting against each other by color, by tongue, by whatever means necessary. And the reality is you've got Christians on both sides of a camp. There shouldn't be a camp. We belong to Christ. All of us belong to Christ. If you're saved, you belong. You're in unity with one another. The things that matter most are not the things that the world or the politicians or the educational system puts before us. What matters most is what matters to God. And churches ought to be focused on the things that matter to God, and that, namely allowing the kingdom of Christ to live within each of us. And the kingdom of God in us is righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy even through COVID, even in a time that we're seeing in our nation right now. Every believer ought to be walking in righteousness, peace, and joy. And the reason you see believers who are not and are walking around like a chicken with their head cut off is because they've taken on the agenda of the world instead of the purposes of God. We've gotten off track. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Turn, if you will. I'd like you to mark this in your Bible. We believe in marking our Bibles up. Why? Because it's, it's not the literal pages that are important. What's important is that the, what's on the page gets into your heart, right? Store it in your mind. Use a, use a pen, use a highlighter if it'll help you to memorize the Scripture or help you to be reminded of the Scripture. So it's okay to mark in your Bible. The Bible itself, this book, the pages are not sacred. It's, the, it's the, what's the print. It's what's being said that is sacred. Amen? And so... We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the Apostle Paul gave us this statement. He says in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice the word spirit there that he uses is with a capital S. So he's not referring to a man's spirit, he's referring to God's Holy Spirit. He says, for in one spirit, and there is only one spirit, we were all baptized into one body by one spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and look at this, all were made to drink of one spirit, of one Holy Spirit. So there we see clearly the baptism of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is the baptizer who immerses each believer with the Spirit into the unity with all other believers. When your spirit is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you become born again. And that is when you are baptized into the body of Christ. This is why John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Listen to this now. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's speaking of the baptism into the unity of the body of Christ. He's, and then he adds, and with fire. 
That is a reference to the judgment that comes to, in this text, the Pharisees who don't repent. In fact, let's go back. Turn to chapter 3 of Matthew. Look at verse 7. I want you to see this. Whenever we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, make sure that when you start defining the baptism of the Spirit, you define it based on the Word of God, not on your own interpretation or what others have tried to put on you. I want you to see this, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, this is John the Baptist, by the way. This is not Jesus. This is John the Baptist who's baptizing these people. And these Pharisees and Sadducees show, show up. He says, you brood of vipers. I like how John is so diplomatic in his words. Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he's immediately addressing sin in their lives. He's addressing the fact that in their sin, there's a wrath that's coming to them. Verse 8, bear fruit. Now he calls them to the righteousness. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repent of your sins and then show the fruit of repentance. Show that you now are walking in the righteousness of God. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't hang on the coattail of Abraham. You've got to stand up for your own sin, and you've got to repent, and you've got to come clean. Verse 10, look at this. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Everything that John the Baptist has just said has been a warning to those who are in sin, those professional hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them to bear fruits of repentance, calling them out of their sin. Why? Because the wrath of God is being stored up against the ungodly. He covers this. The very next words out of his mouth, that's the context. Now the next words, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's already spoken of fire in this text. And what was the purpose of speaking about fire? What was the connotation? That if you don't repent of your sins, you're going to land in a fiery pit of hell. You're going to be consumed with a judgment of fire. That was the context. So now he says, look, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one coming, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and fire. And he goes further. Now, look at this. You would think the verses before and the verse after would pretty much tell you what that middle verse is really about. Now the verse after. His winning fork, the, the winning fork of the Messiah, is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you see that all the way from verse 7 to verse 12, this whole thing is about this baptism uh, by Christ and with fire? The fire is not referring to what happened on the day of Pentecost. When cloven tongues of fire rested upon the people, that was a singular event in the history of man that God wanted to put on display his power, his authority, and the coming of the church. This is a very unique time here that John is preparing the Pharisees and Sadducees 
for what's going to happen if they don't repent and if they're not baptized. And he speaks of the ministry of Christ, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is baptized into the body of Christ. And if you don't allow him to baptize you with, with into the body of Christ, you're going to face fire. It'll be a baptism of fire. Are we clear? That's what he's referring to. Yet many Christians have been wrongly taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. See, to believe that John was referring to some experience that the believer will have when he's baptized is to misunderstand the passage entirely. Many see this passage where he talks about the baptism of the Spirit as an experience that the believer is supposed to have. That's not at all what he's talking about. It's, 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 this was said for the unbeliever. And the emphasis of a born-again believer should not be on some phenomenon or some emotionally driven experience that we seek with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not, listen, please hear me on this. I'm not saying that, that, that as a believer we should not experience God. Uh, when we sing songs, I get excited about that. My spirit starts welling up. I've got to hold back my tongue because I want to yell out sometimes too much, you know. Uh, there's nothing wrong with emotion in itself. Emotion is good. We should show it from, the time, from time to time, amen? That's why every once in a while I raise my voice. I get excited about what I'm saying, man. I can't hold it in. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with emotion. But you don't want to think that somehow that the main focus of your work in the Holy Spirit is that you have some kind of an emotional experience. It's not about how high you jump. It's not about how loud you can shout. It's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about walking in the Spirit that we're called by Jesus Christ to follow the leading of the Spirit. Jesus himself was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Did that lead him into some emotional high? Are you kidding? 40 days without food? There ain't nothing good about that. Not in my mind. I mean, look at the size of me. Probably do me well, though, wouldn't it, for 40 days? But I can't say that that was an emotional high for Christ. It was not. And he's being led by the Spirit. The Spirit is not about you getting some phenomenal experience every time you turn around. It is about you being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. It's not how high you can jump. It's how straight do you walk when you land. The Spirit is given to us, Romans 8, 28 tells us, and through 30, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us conform to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not to serve up, you know, daily these cotton candy experiences so I, my teeth rot out. It's that I would grow, that I would be obedient, that I would follow the leadership of the Spirit. Why? So that I can be conformed to Christ. Why? So that I can fulfill the purpose of God in my lifetime. And the purpose of God for Christ at the beginning of his ministry was to go and suffer to deny his flesh the gratification of the senses and to suffer in the wilderness. And then, because he was weak and vulnerable, 
allow the enemy to come and tempt him. It was a test. Aren't you glad that your Savior passed that test? We are facing those kinds of tests every day. So, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, that is, tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. They say that after five days, you lose your sense of hunger when you go on a prolonged fast. I've never made it to five. I have fasted four. I've never gone five. And they say that you won't experience hunger once you get past that fifth or sixth or seventh day. They say you won't, you won't feel hungry again until you get towards the end of the 40 days when now your body is eating the body and you are now starving to death. And at that point, when you, that happens, you need to eat because you'll die if you don't. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. It's interesting that Satan waited for the right opportunity to approach the Son of God. He always, he's all, he, isn't that true? Isn't he always looking for opportunities in our lives? He is so patient. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion. Only he doesn't walk around roaring all the time. He sneaks around like a lion too, waiting for the right opportunity to pounce. And that's what he did with Christ. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He, God the Father, will command his angels concerning you, the Son, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In one of the gospels it says, then Satan left him for a more opportune time. He ain't weak enough yet. Let's give him a little more time. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God? That is a very poor translation here because this word if is not in the indicative. It's in the subjunctive. That means the text would better read for us, Since you are the Son of God. There's no doubt in Satan's mind that this is God, okay? So this testing is not because if you're the Son of God, then prove it. No, it's not that. It's since you're the Son of God, go ahead and act on it. That's a different approach, okay? Listen, listen, church, I want you to hear this. The temptation of Christ in the wilderness was not about stones and bread. It was not about high places and what God could do to rescue 
or high places and gaining control of everything. Listen, it's not about any of that. The real temptation that the devil presented Christ three times was to get Jesus to act on his own will apart from the Father. If I can just get him to not obey the Father and do it his way. He's the son of God. He's got the power. He can do it. But Jesus was committed to the work of the Father, just as we, disciples, should be committed to the work of God. The de Every day, you and I are being tempted by the devil. Every day. And oftentimes, we act on our own instead of allowing the Father to guide us. Why? Because we're not being led by the Spirit. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're now walking in our flesh. This is what I, I see this as people are always saying, well, you know, it's it's the spiritual warfare and it's it's the, you know, it's it's what Satan's doing and his work, his spiritual work in this present world. Absolutely he's at work. But you're also clothed in flesh and blood, and that's that's working against your spirit as well. The spirit is always willing, but the Bible says the flesh is what? Weak. And every day we give in to the flesh. Instead of following the spirit as Christ has modeled for us here in this wonderful passage of scripture. The temptation is especially true in the use of our spiritual gifts. Our spiritual gifts were given to us by who? By the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gave you the gift that you have. And, and they're to be used for two purposes. One, to bring glory to God, and number two, to edify the body of Christ. That's what the gifts are given for in the church, is to bring glory to the Father and to edify the church. And so what happens? Satan comes along, and he says, hey, why don't you just use your gift in that situation over there and not put in the work of having to trust God for the answer? You're gifted in that. Go ahead and just do it. Be like a pastor who never studies because he's a gifted communicator. Ah, I, I knew a pastor one time, I was... I was a young pastor, young guy getting started in the ministry, and we had a speaker there that Sunday, and I was supposed to read the passage of Scripture. I got up and read it, and I'd asked him while standing on the platform. We, you know, back in those days, you had the seats. You had these big thrones up there. These preachers would sit on these thrones. You know, Their feet couldn't even touch the floor like a bunch of little puppy dogs sitting up there. And, and I was sitting next to the guy, and, and I said, hey, so what's your text today? What are you preaching? And this is what he said to me. You know, I, I don't know. He said, I'm sure the Lord will give me something. And he got up, and I'm telling you, the guy was a silver-tongued orator. He could talk about it. If you tell him, preach a sermon on light, man, he could go off and do it. But he was not being led of the Spirit. He was led of the flesh. Led of the flesh. Don't think for a second that good sermons are all from God. We can rely on our gifting and not trust the Lord. You know what the Apostle Paul said? He said in 1 Corinthians, he said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech or superior wisdom. When I came to you, I came to you in weakness, fear, and trembling. 
Why? So that you would not rest on man's wisdom, on man's experience, but you would rest on the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power as I spoke. And that's true for all of us in that area of gifting or that area of expertise or that area of experience. It's easy for us to function in that area and never give God a thought. And this is exactly what Satan wants from you. He wants you to become confident in your abilities, not confident in what God can do if I'll surrender my life to him. I think this is the biggest challenge to the church today. Too many Christians who rely on experience, rely on what they've already learned, rely and are not seeking wholeheartedly God. When Jesus fought against the devil here in this, in this story, what did he do? Three times he used the word of God to defend himself. He knew the word. He was the word. We should be in the word. That's how you know to trust God is because you know the word of God. How many Christians today have very little, if any time, in the Bible? And when we speak to them, hey, why don't you get in the word? Oftentimes, I don't need the Bible. I got Pastor Greg. I go to the sermons every Sunday where you get to just sit back and listen. No, that's, that's relying on a man. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church, you shouldn't hear a sermon from a preacher, but you want to go and you want to come with a heart hungry to learn and grow and to record so that you can continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus. There's a purpose in your coming. And that you're going to take that time each day to open the Bible and let God begin to pour into you by his word. And you memorize passages of scripture that God can use in you to reach others. Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He, he answered the temptation of the devil with the word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why did he store up the word? Because he didn't want to sin against God. It's a sin not to, as a believer, be in the word of God, growing in the word of God, because you're growing in the truth. Who, think about it. In your right mind, how would you, why would you ignore the Bible if that's the truth to you? If that's the only truth. And by the way, it is the only absolute truth. How can you call yourself a Christian and not be in the Word of God? I'm not trying to beat anybody up today. I'm trying to shake you enough that you'll see that, man, I have been fooled by the enemy. God's been testing me, and I've been failing the test. Satan has me leaning on my own abilities, my own experience, my own understanding, and not leaning upon God. The Word of God is our strength. It's our power against temptation. If you want to be strong against the temptations of this world, and they are many, you've got to get in the Word. You've got to study it. You've got to hide it in your heart, as Psalm 119 says. So we need to be spirit-led and Scripture-fed every single day. You get up in the morning, and you want to be led of the Spirit, and you want to be fed by the Word. Amen? 
John wrote in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. Write that down. 1 John 2, 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. How do they know him? By the Old Testament writings. That's how they know him. I write to you, young men. Listen, young men. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Don't be fooled by the word abide. You know what it means? It resides in you. It lives in you. The word of God is in the house. And you have overcome the evil one. Why? Because you know the word of God. That's how they overcame, by the word of God. That's how Jesus overcame, by the temptations, by the word of God. It's so important that we hide the word of God in our hearts. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Tradition says that back when that temple was still standing, because it was knocked down by the Romans in 70 AD, but when it stood on that corner of the temple, the highest point was about 200 feet above the ground. So Jesus is up around 200 feet. That's where the devil led him. He goes over there. And, and what does he say? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus withstood the first temptation by saying, it is written. He answers Satan with the word. So what does he do now in the second temptation? He comes right back, and he answers the same way. But interestingly, look after Jesus answered the first temptation with, it is written, look what Satan does. He changes his tactic. Now he comes with the word of God. The only difference is he perverts it. Look what he does. He says this, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Jesus, you can jump and God's going to send his angels to rescue you. You won't be harmed. There won't be a bruise on your body. That's what the word of God says. Jesus took that perversion passage, or it's not the passage is not pervert, but the use of that passage in a perverse way, Jesus takes it and he brings truth back to it. What does he say? He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't think for a second that you can use the word of God to go out and jump off a building and expect God to or, you know, the one passage talks about picking up serpents. And there are people all over in these back hills and places that, man, pick up snakes on Sunday. And they're walking around, woo, dancing and holding snakes. You ain't never going to find me doing that. <laughs> and you can say to me, well, you're not a man of faith. Oh, I have great faith in God. I have zero faith in that serpent. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and God doesn't want me to do that. Don't put the Lord your God to test. Don't do it. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. People struggle with that thinking, who does he think he is that he has the right to say that? He does have the right. How can the devil offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world when God's the one that created them? I'll tell you how. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned against the commandment of the Lord not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They actually forfeited the earth over to Satan. 
The Bible says in Romans 6, 16, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. If you're here today and you are not saved by Christ, you've not made him your, your, your master, you're not a slave to him, then guess what? You are a slave. Even Bob Dylan said that. I mean, he got that right in this song. Everybody's got to serve somebody, right? Guess what? You're a slave to Satan. You're a slave to sin. And there's a lot of Christians who are still slaves to sin. They have Christ in their heart. They've been regenerated, but they've allowed the flesh to rule. And now the flesh leads them in sin. In the beginning the world of the world, God made everything. But when God made man, he gave him the right to rule the earth. To subdue the earth. Genesis 1.28, and God, ble God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave all of that to man. What did man turn around and do? He yielded it to Satan by taking Satan's bait. And so Paul the Apostle said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan's domain now. So Satan was offering Jesus in this, in this wilderness experience the kingdoms of the world. But he didn't know that Jesus is saying... Um, you have control right now, but the reason I've come is to take back control. Give it back to God the Father. So I'm not going to jump. Instead of jumping, I'm going to go to a cross and die. And in dying for the sins of the world, we will reclaim the sinner. And God will take the world back. Praise God for that. Amen? The world's a mess. And by the way, horrible things do happen in the world, as if I need to tell you that. There are things that we can't explain or understand, especially in the light of God's love, but we can understand that in the light of the world, under the control of Satan, there's nothing but havoc. It's being governed and directed by him right now. I'm telling you, I could care less about watching the news on television anymore. Either side. Because there's so many lies and deceptions out there. When you go to vote, you need to vote biblically. You don't vote politically because the Republicans say this or the Democrats say that or the independents do this. You go to the booth and you vote based on the word of the living God. And whatever the outcome is, and I always pray that America would move closer to God, and I'll vote that way. The things or the way that I think we would move closer to God. But whether we do or don't, God is still on the throne. You haven't lost nothing. You're just joining in now with the rest of the world that has demonic evil influence all over it. But you still have righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit inside of you.
we're going to have a class. Uh, Paul Westcott is going to teach for us a class, How to Vote Biblically. He's going to cover other things with that as well. And uh, if you are interested in that, you'll be hearing about the date and all fairly soon. I, I just I want our people to be prepared to vote biblically, to understand the issues at hand, and not just to see them the way they're explained by the world, but to see them from a spiritual perspective so that we make decisions based on God, not on the world. Amen? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus worshiped only the one true living God, the Father, and he only served the will of the Father. Jesus never acted on his own. So three temptations, each one answered by Jesus with the word of God. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. By the way, the majority of the earthly ministry of Jesus for the next three years will occur in that region of the north part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum is. Okay, Most of the ministry happened close to Capernaum. Capernaum was a very peaceful place for Christ. It was a great place of rest for him. And verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here it is, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people... Um, dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadows of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now think about this. That was 2,000 years ago that he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's 2,000 years ago. Was he lying? No, he was not. He was saying, I am the king of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And you can experience the kingdom right now. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of God today by receiving in your heart, by faith, the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he went to the cross and died for your sins. You can receive forgiveness of sin today and enter into the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. But it has manifestations in this life that are very real. You don't have to live in constant worry and fear. When you belong to the kingdom of Christ, you have access to the king 24-7 he opens the door into the Holy of Holies where no man could ever go, not even a priest except once a year. Yet Christ has died for you, has cleansed you of all unrighteousness so that you are covered and clothed in the righteousness of himself. And you can stand in the presence of God and receive help in your time of need. You don't have to live in fear and worry any longer. Now you can experience righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In fact, 
James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, said, when you come into trials and tribulations in this world, consider it joy. Why? Because know that whatever trial you're facing, God who lives in you by the Spirit is going to walk with you through the trial. You're not going to be alone. Old Testament, Deuteronomy says, God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You'll never be alone when you follow God, when you allow him, when you surrender your life to him. And that's what is required. This is not you choosing to do something. This is God who has chosen you. Otherwise, you wouldn't respond to him. The only reason that a man can respond to God is be, or a woman is because God has given them the faith that's required to believe. The Bible says that, that long before you ever choose God, he's already drawing you. He chose you. You say, well, how do I know for sure if I'm chosen? Today, by faith, surrender your life to Jesus. Then you're guaranteed to know. That's the guarantee. Just do it. And so he closes this out. I'm just going to read it for you. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. See, immediately they surrendered. They gave up their, their vocation to follow the Savior. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Again, they surrendered to Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, it says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. If you will surrender to Christ, walk away from the life that you have, walk away from putting your parents ahead of God, putting your children ahead of God, putting your grandchildren ahead of God. If you'll make God first and foremost and surrender your life to him and walk by the Spirit every day, reading your word, growing in stature with God and man. Listen, I'm telling you right now, you will be blessed beyond all measure. And in that blessing comes persecution. And the persecution will be a blessing. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. It's all a blessing when you walk with God. Why? Because now you are a citizen of heaven. God is in you. The kingdom of God is in you. I belong to something much bigger than anything in this world. And I am safe and secure with my Father, no matter what happens to me in this world. And I will go to be with the Lord forever. Amen. I, I, when I had COVID several months ago, don't worry if you're here, I, I'm... <laughs> I've been clear for quite a while. Um, 
But when I, when I got that, I also developed uh, AFib. So my heart was in a, you know, unnatural rhythm. And I've been taking some medication that my doctor gave. Of course, I prayed first, Lord, just take it away, just get rid of it. And, uh, and he chose not to do that. And so then, you know, the doctors, you know, we got medication. So I've been taking that. And now it's down to a flutter, but it's still there. Yeah, that's what they said. You got a flutter. Okay. I can just see my little heart fluttering. And uh, so they said, okay, the next thing is we need to just have you come in, do a cardioversion. We're going to shock you and get your heart back to a natural rhythm. So Monday morning, I go to the patient pavilion to get my COVID test. And then Tuesday morning early, they're going to they're gonna shock me. And somebody asked me, they said, well, what does that say to you? What are you, what are you doing with that? How, how are you doing? And I'm like, quite honestly, I mean, the, the scariest thing about it is just not knowing what that all means, you know? Cardioversion. I, I get this, the shock thing, but are they going to use paddles? I mean, what are they going to do to me, you know? And uh, so, but no, I said, hey, look, are you kidding? I know the Lord. I'm good either way. Now, look, cardioversion happens every day, hundreds of times a day. It's a common procedure. It's not a big deal. So I'm not trying to make a big deal out of, out of something that's not. But it, anything can happen. I mean, you could leave here today, get in your car, go out, and, and be with the Lord in glory. Amen? Amen? And you know what? You're not going to complain. Why did that guy run that red light <laughs> when you're in the presence of God? Nobody's going to be arguing with God about that. We don't lose. Are you saved? Has your spirit, which is dead, been made alive, regenerated by Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Not of the flesh. No man's born twice out of his mother's womb. Born of the spirit. That God's spirit raises your spirit so that you can have fellowship with the Father, so that you can be a believer, a citizen of heaven right here on earth and experience the Holy Spirit's daily work in you, conforming you to the image of Jesus, growing you, where you open the Bible and the Spirit actually shows you what the Bible means. It actually starts making sense. Have you been saved? Let's all stand.